I know my identity. I am. I embrace my identity. Everyone else embraces my identity, but I'm able because of my identity to know that I have unique ideas that I can bring to the collective space to evolve and change things and contribute. And that's how talent flourishes. When people can move in and out of those silos, when our identities do not confine us, but empower us to be able to contribute in the ways that we should. That's what we are aiming for. Safe environments where people can come as they are and contribute as they are. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces, diversify our thinking and achieve significant HR success. Welcome to 10 Reasons on Why Right Now, post-pandemic, is the perfect time to realign your diversity recruitment strategies. My name is Nick Day. I'm founder of JGA Recruitment. We specialize in payroll and human resources recruitment. I guess this is something that I really wanted to do because recent movements, such as the Black Lives Matter campaign, and prior to that, of course, as well, the Me Too movement, there have been a lot more reports about diversity shortcomings at the top levels of business, which has really highlighted that a lot of work still needs to be done when it comes to developing work environments that are fit for purpose in relation to encouraging and promoting diversity and inclusion. Now, 2019 did see demand for DNI professionals surge by 106%. But studies behind these strategies highlight a number of weaknesses that I think, and Margaret Green, need to be addressed if businesses want to improve their processes for attracting and retaining diverse talent. Now, many of these processes are embedded in cultural values, strategies, and the behaviors of organizations. Recruiters and talent teams now have an opportunity to play a really important role in evolving the processes that improve diversity and inclusion. Now, 85% of employers say that increasing diversity in their workplace is a current priority. And 67% believe that diversity is important so that their workforce can reflect the communities that they currently operate in. So in this HR L&D podcast, we hope we're going to help businesses and talent teams and leaders to recognize the value behind building a robust recruitment diversity strategy, which is why I'm delighted to welcome my friend, Margaret Ochiang, founder of The Inclusive Village, an organizational psychology consultancy who specializes in developing inclusive people, talent and culture solutions. Margaret has a proven track record in delivering DNI consulting to some of the world's most major and renowned clients. So Margaret, welcome. Tell us, what does this mean for diversity inclusion? Tell us a bit about your background and let's jump straight in after that to point one. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you, Nick, for having me. Um, Yes, I'm Margaret Chiang. Um, Just in case you're wondering, that's a Kenyan name. I am a diversity and inclusion consultant, but I'm also a researcher. And I think that is a really important part because one of the things we're seeing, some of the things that Nick is highlighting, a lot of research has been done in the area of diversity and inclusion. But we also know that it takes about 10 years before research translates into practice. And so we need uh, consultants who are sitting in this space that is between research and practice. And I believe that's that, that's where I sit. And so I help clients answer their big diversity and inclusion questions and, and bring solutions that 
are long term, that are sustainable, that that you can build on. I think one of the things that people struggle with is is where do I start? And then after I have done that, what do I do next? So that that's the thing I'm interested in most is helping clients identify what is the best next thing to do from given where you are, given your context and the in the data that we can access in your organization. What is the next best thing for you to do? And then what would you do next and why? And and, and then really being able to make those initiatives measurable um, so that clients can see the impact and, and the progress that they're making. And, and I think it's it's a really important time for us right now to, to be talking about this because uh, there, there is an urgent need to, to look at things right now because we know we are facing interesting times, shall I say, <laughs> not just as in recruitment and, and HR and as businesses, as globally. And so being able to address DNI challenges right now will not only give us some opportunities and benefits, but also failure to do that will take away something from our organizations. Absolutely right. And it's been quite a challenge for me and Margaret to break it down into just 10 points. Point one we'd like to discuss, we've named biases, unconscious bias. So Margaret, tell us a little bit about what unconscious bias is, in particular in relation to recruitment. I think probably it will be familiar with this term, unconscious bias. It's the word of the season, shall I say. (laughs) Unconscious bias occurs when we use our own experiences or shortcuts to make a quick judgment on an individual or on a group of people. Now, this it starts out as something that was built into us to help us make quick decisions because we don't want to be looking at data and going through an elaborate process each time. But what then our brains have done is to rely on stereotypes and unintentionally apply labels to different demographics and use those labels to inform our opinions. And particularly when we are assessing and uh, selecting talent, we know that the most important thing is to be able to say, to use, um, to, to rely on what knowledge, what skills, what abilities and other characteristics would be predictive of a certain performance criteria that we're looking for. Now, where we are, uh, when unconscious bias comes in, we no longer look at those, the, the knowledge, the skills, the ability, and the other characteristics that are predictive of performance, but we rely on our own experiences or on our own stereotypes or on the information that is available uh, to us. And, and, and that's how come unconscious bias is, is really um something that affects um, who we select into organization. Uh, Examples can be affinity bias, quite common, that people who are more like us, whichever us we want to say, whether whether that's uh, uh, socioeconomic background or race or gender, we know that people that we meet and we feel are kind of from some, something, there's a level of familiarity uh, can predispose us to affinity bias. We like things that are familiar to us. Uh, there is, we know that uh, physical attractiveness, for example, affects your your chances of being recruited, for instance, so people who are obese or who are deemed as uh, not physically attractive tend not to be selected for roles, even though even though those roles have nothing to do with uh, physical attractiveness. So candidates lose out because we have that uh, bias of judging people on looks, even where looks should not be actually uh, something. And then sometimes we compare candidates to each other instead of comparing candidates to a set criteria. So we see a candidate we really like, and then every other candidate has to match up. And sometimes those are on on, on qualities that have nothing to do with the role that we are actually uh, recruiting for. Um, there is what we call the halo effect, where a candidate comes in and has a, 
something you know, so to say a really good handshake or you like their smile and then you then you know their, their knowledge their abilities do not match the criteria that you're trying to look for but you can't you just so hung up on on the one thing that you like that you completely disregard everything else and the opposite of that is where a candidate's uh, one quality that you don't like and that's the, the one so no matter what knowledge they they, they 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 show they have no matter what skills they try to demonstrate you can't get past that you just are so hung up on the fact that they didn't give you a good handshake or that they don't have um, good eye contact. So, so many things that can happen in a recruitment process that can disadvantage some candidates or advantage some candidates. And these are the things that we're talking about uh, that recruitment teams need to check and recheck. When I'm making these decisions, I'm, am I really relying on the, the objective facts that allows me to uh, then recruit the best people for the job? And human nature, of course, is that we like to define things. You know, the idea, even if we talk about space, the idea that there's what's beyond space is a scary thought to humans because we don't like to imagine that we something that we can't imagine, right? It's too big for, for our, our brains to process. So we like to define things and therefore we like to both define ourselves and the way that we define ourselves will be different to how a recruiter will define us because they will see us differently. So if we can remove some of that unconscious bias and try and keep things you know, there are tools out there like scorecard analysis, for example, and tools we can use in recruitment processes that can help reduce unconscious bias. But interestingly, statistically wise, 42% of employers currently do not use any strategies consciously that reduce unconscious bias when recruiting. I thought that was quite an interesting stat that's come through. And 81% of employers recognize the potential that unconscious bias has to impact decisions. And you mentioned at the start of that that Many of us are aware of these buzzwords right now, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're doing anything about it. So although 81% recognize this potential for unconscious bias to impact decisions, uh, and it, they also recognize that it's, it's leading them to miss out on top talent, we're not necessarily doing anything to, to overcome some of those, those issues. And we're going to talk about that because that leads us nicely on to the point two, which is it's a bit of a cliche term. We titled it War on Talent. It's something I've been hearing this term since I started in recruitment 18 years ago. But with reality as it is right now, and we've called this post-pandemic, I know we're still in the midst of it, but we are hopefully coming through the other side of it. Do you think right now is a good opportunity, Margaret, for us to seize on opportunities that, you know, in relation to diversity and recruitment post-pandemic is now a better time than it was before because of all the change that we've gone through? I would say yes, actually. Any time is, is a good time to realign, uh, to look at your diversity and inclusion strategies, to look at how you can make the talent uh, assessment and selection process fair. But right now, it's actually quite important because one of the things we know about bias also is that when we are under pressure or external threats, our reliance on our experiences, our reliance on shortcuts and information becomes even higher. So unconscious bias increases when there is pressure on when there is external factors. And so right now, the economic challenges that we might be anticipating or experiencing, the pressures of working from home, the pressures of hiring in this current um, setting already predisposes us to to higher biases. And, and that's why this is this is more important now than ever. And, and we need to know that if we weren't checking before, we actually do need to check now. And that's one thing. And the other thing is, so, so when we are in, in an environment like this, we actually do need the best talent for us to be able to come out on the other side, whatever that is, because things things have changed. You know, we don't know what this thing we're calling new normal is going to look like, or even if there is a new normal. And so we're going to rely on talent and skills that we probably haven't 
had before. We are going to have to evolve through this whole process. And, 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 and that's why thinking about how can we bring in more diverse uh, people, uh, maybe the kind of, kind of talent that we have ignored or not nurtured before, it's a real time for us to look at what I would call diamonds in the rough. And, and this is not to say that there's something wrong with those diamonds. That's to say that is the diamond that we have neglected. That's the talent that we haven't actually been accessing or nurturing or paying attention to. I think that's what's going to differentiate between the businesses that are going to do well now and the businesses that are not going to do well. Because what else is left is to get um, that competitive advantage above, above your competitors. And where are you going to get it? So you are going to get it if you can tap into something that other people are ignoring or something that has not been explored. These are times for experimenting, times for learning, times for trying out new things. And in that process, we will, that's how we evolve the new normal. So I really do think, I don't know whether there's a war on talent. Maybe it was a scuffle. I don't know. But what I know, whatever it is, we are entering a new phase where we have to do things differently and we have to find those diamonds in the rough. I totally agree. Like this brings us on to something that I'm quite passionate about, and it's it links really well, which is point three, which is diversifying our talent pools. There is a belief at the minute that with so many people unfortunately being made redundancy as a result of the crisis, that there's talent everywhere is going to immediately come to us, and that to a certain degree that's true. But the problem is at the minute, I think we've become too reliant as both an external recruitment uh, sector that, that I represent, but also I think internally for talent teams that I speak to on a daily basis, we've become too reliant on one pool. And I know that everyone on this call is going to be familiar with it. That tool is LinkedIn. We need to diversify our talent pools if we're going to locate diverse talent. For example, maybe some of you know this, maybe some of you don't, but the average age demographic on LinkedIn is between 25 and 34 years old. It's 57% male, but the UK population is 49%. So already, if I'm using LinkedIn, I'm not accessing a, a, a true representation of the demographic of my industry by using LinkedIn as my single tool. I should mention as well, 25 and 34-year-olds is 61% people on LinkedIn are 25 to 34. But based on all social media platform usage, only 28% of internet users at the moment, aged between 16 and 64, are using LinkedIn once a month. So again... Hootsuite is the thanks for giving me those stats. But that also brings in other questions in terms of LinkedIn. You know, what is the true demographic of a LinkedIn user? We ha I haven't done analysis to know what that is, but it, does it accurately represent the communities that are underrepresented elsewhere? In addition, when we look at other tools, if 76% of recruiters at the, and talent professionals at the moment are only using LinkedIn, only 20% are using Twitter, only 17% are using Facebook, and yet Facebook is as big, if not bigger, than LinkedIn as a total pool of candidates, and only 2% are using Instagram. And I'm bombarding you with statistics at the minute, but I think they're important because ultimately, people at the minute are telling us they don't have the tools they need to attract diverse candidates, but then they're often only using LinkedIn. In fact, 45% of employers are saying they don't have the tools available to, to, to attract the diversity they need. 71% of employers are saying that Finding diverse candidates for senior roles in particular was more challenging than finding diverse candidates at a more junior level. Now, again, what does that say? If we look at the demographic of individuals registered on the likes of LinkedIn, is it accurately representing the, the underrepresented groups that we want to attract, those, those gems that, uh, that Margaret so eloquently mentioned about before? Are we accessing those people? Are we exposing ourselves to getting applications and finding talent from the underrepresented groups? Because I personally think it's this lack of access to diversified talent pools is a real key reason why we're facing challenges at the moment in our diversity recruitment objectives. What do you think, Margaret? 
I absolutely agree. So, you know, we've talked about finding the right talent. So there's where, where are we looking and who's there? And, and there's, there's, I can hear a lot of um, something called groupthink in, in the recruitment industry or in the way that we are currently accessing talent. All of us are looking in the same place. Groupthink is where we see a few people looking somewhere and then we all want to. We all think that's the right thing to do. And, and, and so this is what I'm saying. These are if, if we are going to come out in the new normal, I don't know what that is, but <laughs> if we're going to evolve ourselves into a new places as, as a talent market, then those are some of the things we need to try and find ways of breaking away from, from the new normal, from, from what is, uh, sorry, from what is our defaults. So for example, you know, think about the users of LinkedIn. You, you, you've talked about their demographics, but also there's something about social media users that, that we are missing out on here. There's something about people who are very good at self-presentation probably being the ones who are more likely to use these platforms. Now, self-presentation is a quality that might actually be good in some roles. Some people are poor at self, you know, online self-presentation, and but they've learned that that's where recruiters go, so they will go there anyway. Others will still not go because it's, it's not something, it's a quality that is important for the roles that they're trying to do. So what we'll end up doing is we will be recruiting the, a certain type of a person, because that's the, that's, that's the, if we're only accessing them online, if we're only accessing them on LinkedIn, there might be, you know, we haven't actually talked about what personality types might you find very active on LinkedIn. You can homogenize the process. Exactly. So my, my fear with these things is that people who are kind of using a certain platform probably have certain things in common. And if you only use that platform to retreat, then you're literally flooding your workplace with just one type of people. Now, again, you're not going to get much diversity with that. It might be in terms of age. It might be in terms of gender. It might be other demographics. So we really have to be careful when we're we're looking for candidates. And, you know, I I did this even when we do research, for example. Um, You know, I did a, a recent piece of research and I went on LinkedIn. And then I thought to myself, actually, if I am only looking for these people on LinkedIn, I'm probably just looking for one type of a person, whereas there are other people with these same characteristics that are elsewhere. So I had to step back and use my networks to find people who are probably not on LinkedIn or who I am not connected to on LinkedIn to give myself a much bigger sample of candidates for my research. And, and that's how bias works. You know, you, you, you're you convinced that you're right and, and you're getting the candidates, but you're looking in a very narrow and homogenous way. And these are some of the patterns that we need to break out of if we are going to make diversity a reality for ourselves. So relying on other networks that you have, and there's something again about organizations and their brands. Branded is out there. Your brand is either attracting or repelling diverse candidates. And just even improving your brand uh, can really help candidates start coming to you. If you already have a, a number of diverse candidates working within your business, then if they like your brand, if you are a good working place, then using them to tap into their networks is another way to get you out and, and, and help you diversify who you're attracting and who you're reaching. So different ways, instead of just looking on LinkedIn or going more on Twitter, which are all great, but we need to make sure that we're challenging ourselves enough to look in different types of, of places and also not looking as talent as being in one place. Talent is global. Absolutely. And of course, if we're not doing these things, we're all almost adding to the problem. So uh, I've started within the payroll community where I've tried to find out if LinkedIn is representing um, following the Black Lives Matter campaign, black candidates within the payroll community. And now at the administrative level uh, for the first thousand people that I've researched, 
4% were black and represented, which is roughly in line with the government census. Mm-hmm. However, when you go up through the ranks and you start looking at the senior pale professionals, mm-hmm. only 1.8% were represented. So that tells me that there's somewhere there's a there, there's a, a, an issue. I don't, not, I'm not blaming LinkedIn for this. But there's, there's an issue where, you know, that 4% isn't made, that statistic should stay relevant. And it's not. It's reducing as we go up through the ranks. But the problem is, if I'm only using LinkedIn to find that senior payroll resource, then I'm now only accessing 1.8% when I should be accessing 4% if I'm keeping it in line with census statistics. So already I'm reducing my access to talent. And therefore, if I'm only using that tool, I'm arguably contributing to that underrepresentation issue. We need to make sure we're not using language that can alienate others in job adverts and job descriptions. We should also look at encouraging more than one stakeholder to assess CVs. Why not get more stakeholders involved that have more diverse opinions, more diverse views, different definitions of what they think is it looks right for that role involved in that assessment process. And that will really help reduce some of that unconscious bias we've been talking about as well. Anything you'd like to add to that, uh, Margaret? I think that really makes sense, thinking beyond just assessment and selection to which, where are you bringing your talent into? You're bringing them into an organization, into a set culture, into a team. And and how are you going to support them beyond that process? Because it's no good um, recruiting people and then, and then when you onboard them, they have a negative experience and, and they leave. That's not what this process is about. So thinking end to end in in terms of the employee life cycle, right at the beginning of of that candidate's journey is really important. Absolutely right. And that kind of leads us to point four, which is realignment and evolution. We talked about building homogenous cultures, potentially, if we are only using one source. I want to build on that a little bit. Often as an external recruiter, I'm told by clients, I need to find someone who fits my culture, you know, or I get a candidate rejected because they were the wrong culture fit but I think it's it's a dangerous term to use I think it's a term we need to move away from because if we're only ever looking for culture fits i.e., something that fits what we already have then that's the, the quickest way to building a homogenous workforce where we are all the same and if we're all the same we can't evolve so I'm a big fan of trying to encourage terms like you know evolving cultures but I want to find someone who's going to evolve my culture someone who's going to move it forward and if we start thinking in those terms it can really help us when we start targeting candidates they're going to bring something unique to our own company cultures that don't currently exist and as my master's in professional consulting has taught me you know it's essential because culture and values help to define a business they set expectations for how employees should behave and they provide clarity and direction for strategic decision making which then obviously impacts long-term organizational success. So it's by recruiting professionals from a range of backgrounds, all levels of seniority, that business can gain access to a wide variety of viewpoints and perspectives, which again is why we talked about having different stakeholders also involved in that assessment process. To give some statistics behind it, which is you can probably tell me now I'm quite a fan of, we look at businesses like uh, like EY, for example. Their, 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 stats, their statistics have said that companies in the top quartile for racial and ethnic diversity are 35% more likely to have a higher financial return than their industry peers. So with that in mind, Margaret, with realignment and evolution, the next point, what advice would you give to a client who wants to take action to really evolve its existing culture and values? You've covered most of it, but I I would also say, I would also add that evolving culture, especially right now, is about also utilising diverse voices. Um, If if you're going to bring in new talent, as I have already said, if they are the minority in your organisation, 
you need to invest in the space where they will feel safe to bring their ideas because you've hired these people to be able to contribute. If they're going to evolve your culture, then you have to open up the space. You have to invest in the space where they can actually bring those ideas, where they can take some sort of interpersonal risk. Uh, it, we, we are more likely to take interpersonal risk if we have this thing we call psychological safety. Uh, the feeling that I will not be, I will be seen as an individual or, and not as a representative of my demographic. So as a black woman, I can speak on this webinar without someone saying, Black women always speak like this. And I'm speaking as Margaret, not, not as black women. So people, candidates can easily judge when they're in an environment that is likely to generalize and stereotype them. And, and the, the risk with this is you could bring diverse talent into your business. And if you haven't dealt with these underlying culture issues, these underlying safety issues, what then happens is the candidates, uh, these, these people come into your business, they have these amazing ideas that they could use to evolve your culture or evolve your business or take you to, to those new heights that you're looking for. But each time they will leave the table with their ideas because they just did not feel safe enough to contribute. They did not feel safe to put themselves out there. Uh, they feared that there are stereotypes in, in the room. People have ideas of who they are or how they should behave, or how would this what we call the policing of minority voices or, or minority behaviors? People can tell if their behaviors are being overly scrutinized or overly policed. This affects how we contribute. So it's a loss to the business because you've invested so much, but then ideas come to your tables every day and people leave with brilliant ideas, never spoken, never contributed because we do not feel safe to take that risk. If you can create a truly inclusive workplace, no ideas will leave the table, good or bad, you hear them all. And then you make that judgment and conversations become more interesting. There's a level of increased curiosity and, and a learning culture where people know that if I contribute something really, uh, it's, some, some ideas are terrible, let's just face it. <laughs> but, but they need to be heard because someone might be able to spin that idea, but see the other side of it that is not terrible and create something out of it. So creating a culture of curiosity and learning, not a culture of blame and stereotyping and, and finger pointing. This is, I've had um, um, my clients, some of my clients, from minority ethnic backgrounds um, describe this of it is a one strike culture and you're out that you feel as a minority group you only ever have one chance if you make a mistake you're out because the spotlight is always on you and that is a big pressure and and so that being overly cautious can stop uh, um, minority groups or women or, or or ethnic minorities or people with disabilities or whichever category, or people who are from a different economic background from, from the majority of the people in the room, can be a bit too cautious to the extent that they don't then contribute in the way that they should. And that is a loss to the business. And this is the thing I talk about uh, when I talk about the inclusive village. It's about how we can create spaces where we see identity, individual identity is valued, but then people feel free. People have that safety to come in and out of their identities into a place that is where we do the collective purpose. So where you can contribute to the collective agenda, to the bigger picture. So I am, as a Black woman, can bring my ideas to contribute in a bigger space. And I know that my voice will be valued. 
I don't have to stay in my silo as or a silo that someone has defined for me as an ethnic minority. No, I, I know my identity. I am. I embrace my identity. Everyone else embraces my identity, but I'm able because of my identity to know that I have unique ideas that I can bring to the collective space to evolve and change things and contribute. And that's how talent flourishes. When people can move in and out of those silos, when our identities do not confine us, but empower us to be able to contribute in the ways that we should. That's what we are aiming for. Safe environments where people can come as they are and contribute as they are. Fantastic. And let's, let's be honest, at the minute, I'm sure there are talent refreshed out there who are trying to recruit against values that are actually out of date. I mean, a lot of businesses haven't really looked at their values for many, many years. They were set when, they, when these companies were founded and they've never been rechecked. But there's a lot of analysis and a lot of um, statistics out there and research, which you can go into Google and find yourself, that if values are not realigned with behaviors, then business performance suffers. So you need to make sure that the values of your business are aligned with behaviors that are being demonstrated internally. And that doesn't just mean, you know, okay, now following the recent movements, I've decided I'm going to have a more diverse recruitment strategy. So we're going to look for X. That doesn't matter if you're branding, everything is being um, forward thinking in terms of diversity. But actually, when you recruit internally, you're not living that value and those behaviors then it still fails. You've got to live it internally as well as promote externally. And you've got to make sure it all works together. So I think it's a good opportunity for a number of businesses to have a think about their existing values. Are they still fit for purpose? Do they need some realignment? Are the behaviors by both senior stakeholders and founders and CEOs and so on, and the, the employees at lower levels, are they living and embodying those behaviors that are important to the success of your business? And I think that's where we should also be managing against in our performance reviews and our appraisals if we are people really living the behaviors and the values that we think are important to our business and if we are great you're pretty much going to be on track for a very successful business have you ever asked yourself how can any recruiter understand my hr recruitment challenges please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet here at jga hr recruitment we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Margaret, tell us how realignment post-pandemic then can give organisations the opportunity it needs to ignite visionary leadership that can navigate the complex and ambiguous context that we're going to be operating in post-pandemic. That's a really uh, important one because um, there's always a less talked about link between diversity and leadership. Now, research has shown that diversity, when we say that uh, companies that are ethnically diverse, for example, are 33% more likely to outperform their peers in in terms of performance. There's a link there that we we miss in that statistics, and that's the link of how those organizations, those teams are led. So without visionary leadership, a diverse team will not be able to, will not necessarily realize that competitive advantage. And, and, And that's why I brought in this point about visionary leadership. It is critical, uh, Diverse teams could fail if they're not led well. And and, and so what what is that? When we're talking about visionary leadership, what are we talking about? 
so, so this is the kind of leadership that will bring out the best out of a diverse team. It's where we're able to articulate the goals and aims. This is the thing I was calling the collective agenda, the collective purpose, the collective space. The, the, the visionary leader is the one who's able to articulate this well in a futuristic way, set value-based goals. And we just talked about this whole thing about values. Where did your values come from? Who uphold your values? Who do your values reflect? So a leader who's able to articulate uh, value-based goals for the team and for the organization and make sure that these values are shaping behaviors on a day-to-day basis um, on the team or within the organization. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about um, visionary leadership. And it is with that kind of leadership that it has been found that particularly ethnically diverse teams need visionary leadership for them to be able to perform uh, to their best uh, potential. Uh, and and there's, the other, there's another aspect of, of leading diverse teams is that leaders who are visionary, but also uh, who do not just categorize people, who are not prone to stereotyping, uh, or who are not just prone to putting people in boxes, are the ones who are more likely to bring the best out of their diverse team. So for example, if I am trying to put a new team together to, to deliver on something, and let's say I'm putting a, a global team together, a global HR team, and I, my starting point is, okay, I want to make this team really diverse. So I will bring some Asians on board, some Europeans on board, some women on board, some Africans on board. In the surf, on the surface, I sound like I'm doing something good. But look at where I started. I started by demographics. I did not start with these are the characteristics and the competencies that are important for the success of this team that I'm putting together and listing those down so I have documented it. And then going around the business and saying, who are the people who have these characteristics? So if I'm going to look, say, in in, in our Asian region, for example, I'm going to be looking for people specifically who have those skills, which means if I don't find them in the business, I have to find them from elsewhere. So instead of Straight away saying, because I am leading diversity, if I'm going to put a team together, I'm just going to start with chucking in a few people with different characteristics. That's that's what undermines uh, when we say um, sometimes diversity doesn't work. It doesn't work when we are prone to just going into demographic categories without thinking about competencies first and then going to look for the talent that matches that competency wherever that talent is and not relying on another thing leaders will fall Four is thinking, oh, who do I know in our African region? Instead of thinking, who embodies these characteristics in our African region? So when you're going for the people you know, uh, you're thinking, oh, I know this guy. I'll bring him on board. I know that guy in our Asian region. I'll bring him on board. I know that guy in the Americas. I'll bring him on board. You see, what you've just done is you brought people you know. You haven't brought people who embody the competencies, the knowledge, skills, ability, and other characteristics that are going to make your team successful. So yes, your team will be diverse, but your team haven't got probably the competencies to make them succeed. So these are some of the things. So a visionary leader, yes, will look at those things, but will also know what it takes to make that team perform and articulate that really well, really hone in on those values and lead that team to success. And, and that's that. So that's that's what I, I wanted to highlight. The link between leading, uh, between diversity and leadership is so important. It's the make or break of, of diversity and inclusion. And, and then there's something about also being able to communicate that vision to, to the organization. So this is the leader who will say, um, 
what is my part right now in creating an inclusive work culture around here? Why is this important to me as an individual? And why is this important to my team? And, and what is the best way that I can communicate what I'm feeling, what I know, what I'm convicted of to the entire business? This helps us not to make, say, diversity and inclusion the work of DNI people or of HR people or just of senior leadership or minority groups. It makes the work of DNI everybody's work in the organization. That's one of the key success factors for successful DNI is where the whole organization understands what is your part in this. Now, one thing that uh, you may or may not be aware on this webinar, depending on my relationship with you, but ultimately I've, I've linked the next point to what Margaret just said, which is vulnerability, which is point six. Margaret's helped me massively come to terms with the fact that as a 38-year-old white Caucasian male, I am able and it's okay for me to try and promote and develop the, the recruitment strategies that we implement in relation to improving diversity in, in the workplace, both the external clients that we work with and, of course, internally as well. What I'd like to know from Margaret is what advice would you give to other people that maybe lack the courage or a little bit scared or, or fearful of being fearful of just being vulnerable, really? You know, what advice would you give them to help them on their journey to go forward? I totally understand the fear that people, that majority groups, especially white males, uh, feel around this subject. And, and this, it's, it's a legitimate sort of discomfort because most of us have got to where we are today because we were good at the jobs that we did. We, we have progressed and succeeded in our careers because we know what we're talking about. And then here comes diversity and inclusion. And all of a sudden, we realize there's something about this that we don't know. There's something about this that we don't understand, that the experts in this field look less like us. And, and for someone who has built, and which is all of us, we, we build our careers but through knowledge, through being able to exhibit that knowledge and, and that confidence. This can be very, very challenging. And, 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 and this is why this diversity and inclusion is a unique area. It requires different skills than the skills we've had before. And this is why I was saying looking for unusual sort of different ways of doing things is a real core part of, of promoting diversity. Because now we are being asked here to step back and adopt vulnerability, which is not something that we have associated with um, leadership and particularly male white leadership in the Western world. We're being asked to develop a new skill and that's where that can feel a bit like there's a bit of a distance there. But it is a, a skill that we all need. It's a skill that many of us already have. We just don't use it enough. Brené Brown says, no vulnerability, no creativity, no tolerance for failure, no innovation. It is that simple. If you are not willing to fail, you cannot innovate. If you're not willing to build a vulnerable culture, you cannot create. And the times that we are in are a time for innovation. We do know that volatile and uncertain times are times when the most creative companies, the most creative businesses are the ones who are going to have the biggest wins. And vulnerability allows us to enter that creativity and learning space. It's not a space that you control with command and, and you know command and control structures holding everything down. It's a space where you need to hold things a bit loosely including your own knowledge, including your own preferences. And I think that's the thing we've been talking about, Nick, about, no, you enter this space, but you hold things loosely. <laughs> and, and the people who are able to hold, you know, you, you are allowed to have strong opinions, but you just need to hold them a bit loosely. Uh, and, and so as, as, as if, if you're a white male in this space, if you're in the white majority, or if you're in the privileged majority, 
one of the things you, you're looking around the organization and thinking, who has the power in this space, whose voices are being listened to right now, versus who has got the wisdom, the experience, and the knowledge right now on this topic, and are their voices being listened to? And vulnerable leadership sometimes allows you to just say, actually, I do have the power and I do have the budget, but I don't necessarily have the experience or the wisdom or the insight or the knowledge. And therefore, at this point, I am going to pass the mic on to someone who does. There's a lot of passing the mic when we are exercising vulnerable leadership. And that is a strength. The leaders that we're really going to admire are the ones who are able to know when to pass over the mic. The ones who will not speak over minority groups, but will speak with them. The ones who will be willing to step into this space as allies to co-create new solutions. The ones who will be able to empower not just their own voices or voices of people who look like them, but tap into other voices that have the knowledge and insight but are not being listened to. That's what vulnerability is. It might seem uncomfortable, but without it, we will not innovate. We will not create and we probably will not survive if you, if, if you think about it. So I really would say um, if, if people are feeling vulnerable and, and, and are nervous about this, the best thing is to experiment. Experiment with stepping out and, and accepting that I might actually not know everything. What do I know? We will make mistakes. Oh, yes, we will. We will say things that we wish we didn't say. But if we do, we will learn. That's, that's the thing. Vulnerability allows you to enter that a learning space rather than a command and control uh, monopoly space of, of, of knowledge. And that's definitely why I've got Margaret with me to help pass <laughs> that mic over to help me with some of the things that I'm passionate about. You know, this is really a personal journey partly for me as well. I realise we all have weaknesses in our process. And I think if we can try and identify those and start our own journeys and we can start to improve the processes and our recruitment strategies as a result, which kind of leads us into the last 15 minutes, which is reaping the benefits of all the things we've talked about and how can we get the best out of improving our diversity strategies. So, Margaret, I'm going to throw it right back to you again as the expert here. What benefits can we really reap by putting diversity and inclusion at the heart of our organisations? We have already talked about business performance, especially uh, where these diverse teams are well-led. We know that uh, these these diverse teams outperform non-diverse teams. A recent report has just uh, reiterated what we already know, that um, FTSE 350 companies uh, with 33% and over in representation uh, of women at senior levels are 10 times more profitable than their counterparts. That is something not to be ignored. There's... There's value in this and research, piece of research after research is continuing to just confirm this. Um, so, so, yes, business performance, businesses that are diverse will perform better than others. There is something about, uh, again, these businesses having very strong brands. We know that the younger generations that we are trying to bring into the workforce are more 80% more likely to choose a diverse brand than a non-diverse brand. So if you want to attract the best candidates that you need, the talent that you need, then it's in your best interest to actually look at your diversity and inclusion practices right now and look at how you can align those uh, and and move things forward. You'll be able to uh, attract better talent in that way because you have a better brand. Um, And then there is just also something around being an ethical and and, and value-based business, really. We we are in the 21st century. These things should, we shouldn't even be debating this. 
you just <laughs> do them. So being a great place to work for everybody, being a place where everybody can come and contribute and thrive, uh, where new ideas are built based on who's there and where people are not stereotyped or put, put in boxes based on their characteristics is something that is going to just to bring uh, value to businesses. The, the other thing, if we don't do these things, then we start to lose something. So, for example, we do know uh, we've had a, uh, recent lawsuits. Uh, some people sued uh, senior leaders, uh, black leaders. I think this happened in McDonald's in America. They, they, they sued McDonald's for systematically sidelining and and removing senior black leaders and, and, and franchisees. It's, it's a case that is I think it's still on uh, this year. Um so things like this, we're going to hear, because of what has happened with Black Lives Matter, we know that employees, uh, no matter what background they're coming from, um, have been emboldened to speak. We, we saw people walk out on Google last year protesting the way women were being treated. Those weren't just women. It was all sorts of employees joining up and saying, you will not treat people this way. We know that current parking of Adidas, she was a senior HR, global HR leader, uh, was recently forced to step down because employees complained in, uh, about the way that um, they, they saw her as not being able to deal with systematic racism in the organization. So if we're not dealing with these things, it's going to cost our businesses. It's going to, as, as a leader in the HR and talent space, these things are going to start costing people their jobs, really. So it's, it's the time to, to deal with this. There are benefits to be, if we, you know, this is the good thing is if you deal with it, you, you, there are massive benefits and, and, and great performance to reap out of it. And if you don't deal with it, that there are, there's pain. <laughs> so Some statistics, which I hope you come to terms with me giving a few of these now, but they're useful. So 54% um, of HR leaders say diversity is crucial to ensure they're doing business ethically. 51% said they believe diversity helped them introduce staff with unique skills into the workforce. And 73% of employers say diversity encourages creative and innovative thinking. So that leads us to point eight, which is opportunities. So Margaret, surely based on everything we've discussed so far today, if we improve and involve our diversity recruitment strategies, we can open up new opportunities. Am I right? Absolutely. So I think we've talked about this. Uh, the, the only thing I would add is, you know, there are also career opportunities here. You know, these emerging visionary leaders, this, this is a time for people to really step up and, and grow in their own leadership and emerge as thought leaders and, and, and visionaries in this space, collect good case studies of how this works and the, the steps that you have done. So there's an opportunity for, uh, for businesses, but there's also opportunities for individuals with great ideas to come out and lead uh, in a diverse and inclusive way. So a new crop of leaders, is a, everything is up for for grabs at this point. <laughs> so I want to take us to point nine, which is we've titled, you titled it actually for me, Margaret, non-performative. Now, studies have shown that a diverse workforce can improve the bottom line of a business. We talked about how you align those with values to help do that. They can help lead to happier and more productive teams. They can drive innovation amongst employees. But to really reap the benefits of the diverse workforce, employers must ensure that the recruitment strategies, as we touched upon earlier on, reach diverse candidates, regardless of gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or socioeconomic background. However, despite employers recognizing the benefits of increasing diversity, we also know that recruitment can play a huge role in helping organizations build for long-term success. In fact, right now, we're seeing more and more opportunities coming up. But I spoke to a good friend of mine called Raza, who is a real advocate for the LGBTQIA community. And something that he said to me resonated and maybe think about this a little bit differently with all these new positions coming available and we can see them online in the simple search i've seen a lot of them be on, only be offered on a fixed term contract basis 
And that suggests to me that, A, maybe you're there to give the benefit of doubt. You want fixed-term contract people in because you want to set strategy and then bring someone else in underneath to manage that going forward. However, I also suspect that some of these roles are being recruited for to be seen to be doing the right thing. And that's how we've sort of termed this non-performative. So I'm going to pass this over to you, Margaret, to talk us a little bit more about how you would, how you see non-performative and how people can help understand this term. Yes. So so performative really is, I feel a lot of pressure. The spotlight is on me. I need to be seen to be doing something. Now, there's a difference between needing to be seen to be doing something and actually doing something. And I think sometimes as leaders, we, we can really underestimate the intelligence of our audience. <laughs> we might think that just looking to put a role together and hiring that people, that our, our employees will believe us. It does come out as a dishonest. So although there is, there, there is a case for sometimes hiring on a short term, I think the thing behind it is how you communicate that to the business. The reason why you're making this a fixed or short-term role is it because this person, as Nick has said, is coming to set up a function or try and help you sort of do that thing that I call um, building a roadmap in a case where you do not want to use external consultants like myself um, for, for various reasons, maybe for cost reasons. So you really need to be very clear that this has been communicated to yourself and to the business so you don't come up uh, or you don't come across as just doing something uh, to show that you have done something. So that, And also think about the impact on the, on the individuals that you bring into these roles. It takes a long time to build the social capital to be able to influence DNI agenda in an organization that is starting out. So how long is it going to take this new person to just learn the politics and the dynamics of, of leadership in this organization? And then to be able to put their uh, roots in, to be able to actually do the job, is the time frame that you are allocating for all these things adequate for the role that you're trying to bring this person in? Or are you setting these individuals up to fail and DNI to fail so you can then say, you see, this stuff doesn't work? So setting people up to, to, to succeed is, is something really important if we're going to hire DNI roles. We want them to succeed. Bringing enough support uh, when you hire these short-term, fixed-term roles and also being able to communicate why you have chosen to do it that way and not take the long-term approach, which is what we know works for DNI, really important. We also know as well, we've talked about it a lot today, that if it's short term, then it's not going to be embedded in your culture and values and your behaviours. So again, it will fail because they'll be misaligned. Whereas if it's a long term plan and you really embed that as part of your cultural values, this is something you're committed to changing. It's much more likely to sustain and work and be productive. And at least to our last point, we termed it transparency and accountability. Because all I wanted to do right now is give everyone a little bit of encouragement and support to say, yes, a lot of this is about recruitment and talent and how we need to improve our processes. But ultimately, external recruiters like myself and internal talent professionals and HR directors and all these individuals, they can't do it by themselves. So it's this does not fall on the head of the head of resourcing or the head of talent or even the head of HR. It falls on whole businesses to improve. We've got to realign recruitment DNI with HR strategy, with wider, broader organizational objectives and entire talent management processes if we really want to reap the long-term benefits. So I'm going to ask Margaret a last question. How can we ensure that we can achieve this? Absolutely. So accountability is that threading piece. And I always say, I cannot say this enough, DNI is a journey, it is not a destination. So you're not 
arriving. Don't rush somewhere. You're not going to arrive. It's a journey. <laughs> it's just like your business is constantly growing and changing. So is your DNI. And therefore, you have to, we have to make sure that this is aligned to the talent and business strategy. We have to make sure that DNI is not just the minority's problem or HR problem or DNI people's problem. It is everybody, everyone's problem in the business that everybody understands that this is something we all have to contribute to. It's not just for compliance that you just try not to get sued by somebody. It doesn't work when you just take a compliance approach. That without visionary leadership top to bottom, you're probably not going to reap the benefits of diversity. If you only have a few or a number of tick box exercises, um, say, for example, unconscious bias training there, we put some committees together, we will celebrate Black History Month, we've got the women going to this conference. So these are all little things that are disjointed and they're not being driven by one major strategy. There's no roadmap in which they fit. This this makes uh, delivering DNI very chaotic and actually not productive. And again, we've talked about being performative, just doing things so people can see that you're doing something really not useful for long-term change. And also where you have delinked your DNI to coach to your culture, you will bring people uh, into the business, but they will not probably stay because they will see there is no support, the overall culture in which everything sits needs dealing with. So values and culture are really core part of delivering. DNI. And actually, a couple of comments have come in as well. So Jetline has just said that she agrees that diversity has helped her team perform better. And we've had a question from Darren who says, Margaret, if you can answer this, do you think that setting up shadow boards slash reverse mentoring schemes can be val- be a valuable way for diverse individuals at a more junior level within their businesses to have their voice heard and to get the benefit of that diversity of thought slash experience? I agree. I actually I like the idea of of, of reverse uh, um, mentoring. It's a way to just open up, uh, especially where you don't have uh, diverse people at senior levels. It exposes uh, the junior, sort of the more junior minority groups to senior people. It helps them to build social capital. But it's also the space where the very senior leaders um, can then expose themselves to that vulnerability piece to learn from someone who is probably who's got a, a different competency who's got a different way of looking at things but if they're open to contribute to that uh, relationship in a mutual way not in a patronizing way then both parties uh diverse it's a really good way to to help your talent sort of connect and link to each other help people build social capital the only thing i would advise is the support behind it because we've seen where reverse mentoring has actually become a traumatic experience for minority groups you're going into this reverse mentoring relationship with somebody who does not understand or value who you are so again it's going to be that patronizing tone there's going to be microaggressions in this relationship things that keep being said that keep stinging you so before we send people in reverse uh, set people into reverse mentoring uh, relationships we need some sort of training on awareness and how to execute diverse um, inclusive leadership if you do not train these leaders, they're just going to harm people. And I think in that case, it's actually better not to do it. Excellent. Fantastic. Of course, if you are working with external agencies and you don't have the resources or the access to underrepresented groups, then you know make sure you ask your agency if they do. Make sure that your agency you're working with is committed to accessing diverse talent pools on your behalf. Because the fact is, if businesses continue to limit the presence of a particular demographic or if they only use one tool, be it linked or any other tool, then they will lose the opportunity to have fresh perspectives, a diverse talent pool to really pull from, which we have proven hopefully during this webinar, 
can really contribute to achieving organizational success and improving organizational performance. Um, I'm going to pass this quickly back to Margaret to summarize anything we may have missed. I'm going to quickly run through the last 10 points. If you want to write them down, you can. For me, obviously, the most important thing is that we make diversity and inclusion part of our core company values and manifestos and behaviors so that we can really start to live them. But I'm going to throw it back to the expert in the room. I'm going to hand you the mic, Margaret. In one sentence, I would say, look at it as a journey. We are in this for the long haul. It needs to become just the way we do business and not something that we do on the side. It's just the way we do business. It's the journey that we are on as a business to improve, to change, to create, to innovate and to become better. Excellent. And for me, come away from the culture fit term I hear so often. Look at evolving the culture of your business. I think it's really important. Don't be scared to be brave. Don't be scared to be vulnerable. And hopefully we can all as a group of talent, HR and recruitment professionals really commit to change over a longer term that really does bring huge organizational business benefits. The 10 points we covered today, number one was biases, two, war on talent, three, diversifying talent pools, number four, realigning and evolution, five, visionary leadership, six, be vulnerable, seven, then reap the benefits, eight, opportunities that they bring, nine, be aware of any non-performative uh, recruitment you might be involved in or your business might be part of, and transparency and accountability, which could also be collaboration. Make sure that everyone else in your business is behind you as a talent or, or recruitment professional in trying to achieve the change that you're looking to to create in, in improving your, your, your recruitment diversity strategies for the future. But I think hopefully that gives everybody a bit of a whistle-stop tour that we've, uh, we've introduced here about how to recruit and improve your recruitment strategies for recruiting diverse talent post-pandemic. And thank you ever so much, Margaret, for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody who joined us today. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.